This is Writing Excuses, Season 2, Episode 16, World Building Non-Human Races. 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. And I'm Howard. All right. Non-human races. Uh, we want to talk about things that aren't human, obviously. <laughs> Howard, you have a lot of non-human races in your stories. How do you come up with them? What are your guidelines? Why do you use them? Let's start with that. Why do you use non-human races? Um, I use them because it adds that sense of wonder to the setting. Okay. Science fiction that doesn't have non-humans in it uh, I think has to work really hard to wow us. And okay. in some cases, that science fiction, the, the non-humans are provided by artificial intelligences yeah. or evolved humans or modified right. humans or something. Sense but of wonder. It's yeah, one of the hallmarks of, of science fiction and mm -hmm. fantasy is that we're dealing with other places, other times, other creatures. Dan, why? Why? Anything to add? Why do you use non-human races? Why did you write a book that had a monster in it killing people rather than just a human killing people? Um, part of the reason for that is because I was initially aiming for YA and thought it would be uh, easier to sell if okay. it was slightly removed from reality. Okay. But beyond that, once I actually got into the writing, I realized that a non-human uh, monster allowed me to play with the themes a lot more than just a normal human would. Because okay. I was able to build rules around this guy and all these other things that would relate with the protagonist in a very different way than a normal human killer would. Okay. Now, I do the same sort of thing with the, uh, the aliens that I create. Um, you don't want to create, you know, two-dimensional aliens. Okay, we'll get to that. That's one of my yeah. questions. Yeah, you don't, yeah. you don't want to create that, but you can play up a particular physical attribute or mental attribute in such a way that the aliens point yeah. up part of your theme. Exaggeration um, for use of theme, for use of conflict. It can help you really build your conflict if the non-human races are tied to it directly. One of the things I always say is intermix your conflicts. Make what's important to your characters, important to the plot, important to the world. You can do mm -hmm. this really well with, uh, with non-human races. Uh, you can do some really interesting parables. Things like, you know, Left Hand of Darkness would never have worked um, without non-human races. Um, let's... So why do I use non-human races? It's a good question. I want to address it myself because I've thought about this a lot. Um, fantasy in particular is, was, was glutted with Tolkien's races. Mm -hmm. um, elves, orcs, elves, dwarves. Yeah, dwarves. Yeah. And the reason for that being, I think, that we all read Tolkien. We proverbially, since um, I wasn't born. <laughs> in, fairness, in fairness, Tolkien sat down. I was. <laughs> Tolkien sat down to create... Yeah. A mythology right. for, yeah, for, for kind of the West that wasn't Greco-Roman. And mm -hmm. he did it so yeah. well that we all copied it. Yeah. 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 Well, we wanted to return to his world and the guy up and died on us. And so what are we going to do? We're going to write our own stories. Mm -hmm. um, we're going we're gonna to write fanfic. And it's, I say that with the most endearing of terms. I think that some people who wrote these, I mean, Donaldson wrote fantastic books. <laughs> so if it's got dwarves and orcs yeah. in it. It's Tolkien fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, but you know, um, I almost, I kind of write professional fan fiction right now. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Glass houses, throwing stones. Yeah. No, we're no, all I, about I, that. I think we're anyway. not throwing stones. We're just pointing out our pretty glass houses. Yeah, exactly. Okay, perfect. Um, so I've thought about that this a lot. When I sat down to, um, to write as a fantasy writer, I wanted to not include the Tolkien esque races. I think that fantasy has moved to a point that we've said, you know what, we love this. These guys did, did some great stuff letting us play around with some of these concepts that Tolkien didn't get time to explore because he died. 
but now we're, it's time to move on. And so my books are marked pervasively by a lack of non-human races. Um, the reason I most I, I, I don't have a lot of non-human races, particularly as viewpoint characters, is because I wanted to focus on the people mm -hmm. and make them relatable. It's easier to make someone sympathetic and relatable if they're like you. Um, having a, an alien race makes this harder. Um, at the same time, I felt a little bit of a lack there in my books. You'll notice my third book, I finally have a viewpoint from a non-human race. And I did that intentionally because I'm, I wanted that sense of wonder. It, it does yeah. add something. And I think it's something that there's a little bit of a hole in in my work. I think my work will almost always focus mostly on the humans. Boy, that was a full of caveats. Almost <laughs> always focus completely. Um, almost, mostly. Mostly on <laughs> Wow. Um, but... At the same time... Well, don't I, tie yourself down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you heard it here Let's first. Let's put a stake in, <laughs> almost, the, stake in the ground. Would have not almost have... Okay. Um, how do you make them not one-dimensional, Howard? How, how do you what make them not one-dimensional? Yeah. Let me, let me uh, talk about some one-dimensional or two-dimensional aliens. Yeah. The Klingons in Star Trek, the original series, yeah. were mysterious and unpredictable. They looked exactly like humans, yeah. only with a little bit of makeup that made them look like the Mongol hordes. Yeah. Um, sometimes. Yeah. Um, and then there was that one episode where the energy monster is making everybody fight, and they all decide to laugh, and they chase the energy monster out, and the Klingon commander says, um, you know, it's too bad we didn't get to fight today. It would have been a glorious battle. That line got seized upon by every writer who ever wrote Klingons for Star Trek afterwards as the defining point of the Klingon race, and they became two-dimensional. Okay. They became mm -hmm. gods of war, mm -hmm. or avatars of war, and very little else. The way to avoid doing that is to look at what happened to the Klingons and say, oh, oh, wait a minute, um, mm -hmm. let's not... <laughs> Let's not do that. Let's not take a sentence that I wrote in chapter three and turn it into not just an important characteristic, but a defining theme. You know what? Yeah. I think at the very next con you attend, you're going to get a bunch of bat lists to the stomach, just so you know. <laughs> and that's because those that. people have no honor. <laughs> uh, the other key example here is Gimli. Uh -huh. I mean, since Lord of the Rings... Anyone who's ever written a dwarf has essentially just written Gimli. The entire mm -hmm. dwarven race is, made is up defined Gimli. by Gimli. And I, I, honestly, in both of these cases, I don't think um, the problem is in the original characterization. In fact, um, and I, I think in Star, Star Trek, they've taken pains to try and deal with that in some of the later series. Um, but, oh, they recognized yeah. that it had been yeah. done, but... Season once... one, Worf, um, was very much... Yeah. This mm -hmm. and but they got got around yeah. it. How do you get around it? How do you boy? This is a real problem in creating non-human races. Is that every one of them acts exactly the same? You put the character in a situation where whatever that theme is that you've identified, whatever that two-dimensional attribute is that's that's defining that dimension, is you know just non-applicable. Okay. Um, does that, does um, that make sense? I, fo following the Star Trek thing, I think the best race they ever created in terms of, of fully-fledged roundness were, were the Bajorans. Okay. And the reason that they eventually became this very well-designed race is because they were forced to spend a lot of time with them. Mm -hmm. They were forced to yeah. define them in more than one way. They were not only this very religious race, but they were also, they had this occupation thing and this rebellion thing going on. They had a lot of different values um, rather than just one. 
And then just by weight of seven seasons of the show. I think that made them non-iconic at the same time. Um, The Bajorans are not nearly as iconic. They're not the race that we remember when we think Mm -hmm. of Star Trek. Um, And so there was a trade-off there. Um, And how do you do this? How are you going to make a race not not one-dimensional if you're going to have only one member of that race show up? Um, Well, I've got that sort of problem in Schlock Mercenary. The the title character, Sergeant Schlock. Right. when I think of his defining characteristic, his defining characteristic is appetite. Mm-hmm. Whether he's eating or uh, destroying something <laughs> or playing, uh, he has an appetite for lots of it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, worked, that's worked well. It, it serves well as a, uh, as a running gag. Yeah. It's, it's fun to develop. But I run the risk of him being you know, two-dimensional. Yeah. Um, the current storyline, I have put him in a situation where he is commanding a mission that has gone wrong, and the things that he are he is doing are command things, mm-hmm. which don't fit well with the appetite. And I've gotten a lot of email from people who say, wow, Sergeant Schlock's actually acting like a sergeant. This is awesome. I've actually, not to stroke egos, um, I've actually really enjoyed that because he has had a, mm-hmm. a lot of I've been depth. noticing that um, as well. Um, yeah. There was a moment early in the strip uh, when they Schlock and a bunch of the other characters are trying to do something, and one of them says, well, Schlock, don't you have any special amorph powers that can help us here? And Schlock says, why is everybody looking at me? Don't you guys have some special human powers? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and that line... There's, there's our line right there. Um, and I think looking at this, you need to look at each of your characters as a character that is shaped by their culture and their physiology. Uh, a race is, an alien race is going to have a different physiology and a different culture. That will shape who they are, but you've got to give them real conflicts, real character drama, real personality that it can be different from every other person in that race. You've got to, you've got to treat them like a human who's got a little bit of a... So, he, he, no, I see yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. I see what you're saying. You, yeah. They have to be human enough right. that readers can relate to them. Right. Yeah. I've read a couple of books, and I can't remember what, what they were, where the aliens were so alien, it was impossible to establish okay. them as viewpoint characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you did, it was only there so that the reader could be confused. Okay, let's step aside and say you can do that with very exploratory, experimental fiction yeah. and do some very interesting things. I think there are people out there who write science fiction who would throw things at me if they listened to me saying, <laughs> you've got to start with a human and extrapolate. Um, because that's very human-centric. But mm-hmm. that need but, is yeah. why my uniocs yeah. have two eyebrows. Right. Well, physiologically, they shouldn't have any eyebrows. They don't have a face. It's just an eye. But I put the eyebrows there so that I can give expressions that are meaningful to my readers. Yeah. Dan, you made a monster very, very sympathetic yes. in your book. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, how did you do that with a monster? Were, what were you doing? How were you, how were you achieving this? Well, in this particular case of this uh, particular monster, it's exactly what we've just been talking about. Um, I created a monster who kind of wanted to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, he had his needs and he had his uh, drives and urges and stuff that you know forced him to kill, but it, he didn't necessarily want to. He wanted to be human. He wanted to continue with his normal life. Yeah. And... So that made him much more relatable because he hated what he was doing. Okay. So what I'm going to back up and kind of correct what I said earlier. Rather than starting with a human and extrapolating, you need to start with a personality 
and extrapolate, if that makes sense. A person should be influenced by their surroundings and their physiology and their culture, but they've got to be an individual. And mm -hmm. if you can do this with your races, you can really make stories that shine. I did, uh, I created the race, the, the Yeomingans who have the arm oh, right, on top of their head and the upside down faces. Yeah. And that grew out of a joke about, you know, living hand to mouth mm -hmm. and the, you know, the importance of, you know, free food in their culture and, and so on and so forth. Um, but after I'd done it, I realized that if, you know, I talk with my hands. A lot of us yeah. talk with our hands. If your hand is already that close to your face, what kinds of gestures are going to be common in that culture? And, uh, and one of them, I, I, I dreamt up an insult, which was, uh, oh, go stick your fist in your mouth. Because you've got a fist right there, and if you take the hand that's on top of your head and shove it into your mouth, that's like, shut up. Mm -hmm. And, okay, it works well for a human. A human reading the book knows what that means, but it seems so much poignant for this race. And I think that sort of thing, anytime you design a unique bit of physiology, work that physiology okay. into the dialogue. Extrapolate. Mm -hmm. Extrapolate. Extrapolate. Uh, the Modi's, uh, Mode in God's Eye. Yeah. Um, on one hand, on the other hand, on the gripping hand, yeah. because they have three arms, and mm -hmm. one of the arms is stronger. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you decide what to world build for your aliens? Um, we've talked about the warnings of world building disease. We've done it in the last podcast. Um, you can't take time to spend every moment thinking of every bit of religion, of culture of, I mean, you could, you could spend years world building a race to try and make them as filled Tolkien out Tolkien did. Yeah, exactly. And mm -hmm. we only have three books. five books from him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, five. Three and then several others. Four. four. We, we got yeah. four. four. We count four. Four and, um, and a half. Um, and a big book of notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you decide? I think you world build up to the point that you've got the, the characters the character has started to develop his or her own voice, yeah. and then, and then you discover. Yeah. Look for the okay. things that are different. Look for opportunities to throw lines like on the gripping hand, or you know, shove your fist in your mouth, or whatever. And mm -hmm. as those things come to you, you're going to be able to go back on your rewrite and say, you know what, that was that little thing I did there, boy, that's brilliant, and I have to support that here, here, and here. And so on your rewrite, your alien's going to get okay. fleshed out enough for the rest of the book. Okay. Yeah. The, yeah. the thing we always come back to is conflict mm -hmm. and develop, you know, the portions of your race that are going to provide the most interesting conflicts when that character okay. interacts with your other characters. That's what I would say too. Um, stay a couple steps ahead of the reader and if you're working on coming up with really interesting, cool races, uh, make them tied into the conflict like we said before. Make their culture in conflict with the culture of your other races. Work very hard to make this all integrated and not don't worry about the parts as much about the parts that aren't going to come out make the races we talked about this in our our thing about yeah. villains make the races the members of those races uh feel like they are the protagonist in their own story yeah, yeah. know what their objectives are what their goals are and have them mm -hmm. act to them just at the end here i want to make a personal plea to end off the podcast um i, I don't want to tread on sensitive toes so to speak uh but I, I wrote an essay once for The Leading Edge when I worked there, which was called Kill the Elves. Um, and the meaning of this is um, your interpretation of elves is not going to be unique enough. Your take on orcs is not going to be unique enough. Naming them orcs but spelling it differently isn't going to be enough. 
naming them orcs, making them act like Klingons isn't going to be enough. Not today. We've come far enough that readers are not looking for that anymore. And yeah, so, in, in 2010. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. You, you've got to take a few more steps. Go a little bit further. Don't go into it writing the Tolkien-esque races unless you really know what you're doing and really want to be hitting that market intentionally or um, if you're writing tie-in fiction where it's appropriate. Um, there are reasons to do the Tolkien-esque, but don't, don't take one step away and think that you're not doing it. You've got to take, come up with completely original new races. That's my plea. Excellent. Seconded. No, wait, I'm third. I beat you. This has been Writing Excuses. Thanks for listening. Um, writing prompt is to write a... a Create a believable yeah. alien yeah. and write something from his perspective. There you go. Perfect. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 